Carl Jung, who's the father of modern-day psychology, probably the most influential psychologist of the 20th century, he says, everything, I'm quoting it now, everything that I taught was anticipated by a rabbi, and his name was Rabbi Dovbeh of Mizrich, and he was a very wise man. This is Chapters, a podcast dedicated to exploring our story. Who am I and what am I meant to be doing in this world? Perhaps through listening, understanding, questioning, we better understand our own story. This episode is also sponsored in honor of the birthdays of Nahama Fega, Bashena Dreza, Chaya Clara, and Esther Basia. Rabbi Chaim Miller, a renowned author and speaker. He's authored over 17 books, including a full biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Turning Judaism Outward, the Gutnik Chumash series, and the Practical Tanya series, transforming people's accessibility to the fame work to the Alter Rebbe. In honor of Yotes Kisle, the Roshan of Hasidus, we have the honor of having Rabbi Miller. I have to say that I'm so excited to be here. The first time I ever met you, I was so, you, your wife kindly invited me for Shabbos and I was very, um, I guess, intimidated. I wasn't sure what I was going to be encountering because I've always been a huge fan of your work. And before the practical Tanya, the Gutnik Chumash was like my childhood in the sense that we were so excited every time the brown books came out mm-hmm. and that I did my universe in my high school. I used your Tehillim to like pass all my exams and your Haggadah was like our favorite Haggadah in my house. So I was like, obviously... I thought I was going to be meeting your genius, but I thought I was going to meet someone that was like completely disconnected from reality, someone that was extremely academic. But the more I spent that meal at your house and I came with my friend Liv, I met someone that was so down to earth, that was so present, that was in a sense I couldn't connect the two because I was like, you think that the more you, the more Torah you write, the more practical the more engaged you are with the world of academia it's so hard to like relate to the regular person on the street but i actually found the opposite and we're sitting here for your test kiss slave and just by speaking to you we heard a lot about your story that this is chassid is something you chose unlike myself like i grew up with this my entire life and i'm always inspired by people like you and my friends and people that have chosen it for themselves so i thought we should start from the beginning. I just want to, I guess, start a little bit from how you grow up. You're from England. I'm from Australia. So we're, we're both under the Commonwealth and just a little bit about how you grow up. And yeah. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for thinking of me <laughs> and your kind words. Um, I grew up, we, we, you don't really have it so much in America. In Australia, you probably have it traditional, which is, you know, we had a Seder. We made Kiddush Friday night. I had some minimal Jewish education, but I only really um, started to study Torah like seriously when I was about 21. So I kind of started there. What, where was the first time like you engaged with Judaism in like a sense that was academic? Because there's so many people in Sydney that grow up in like a traditional household, but they don't see Judaism as something that is academic. What's True, not? yeah, no. My synagogue experience had no academic qualities whatsoever. It was just like a kiddish, a bad kiddish. It wasn't even a good one. Um, 
And so when I was in college looking for meaning, I was going to philosophy lectures, I never thought of checking out Judaism because like, I've checked that out. I know there's nothing there of any intellectual depth. So then I was one day in a bookstore um, and looking at philosophy books, and I found Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Really? I was like, whoa, a rabbi wrote a philosophy book? Unbelievable. So I bought that, still have it somewhere. And I read about half of it and blew me away. Just, I mean, the guy for the, you kind of end up more perplexed than when you were starting with the guy for the perplexed, but it, it, it was, um, it was just, wow, there's this really super intelligence in Judaism. I got to check this out. So how did you come to Chabad? Like when people usually start on that path, the Tanya is sort of like, I guess it is philosophy, but how did you find, when's the first time you saw a Tanya? Well, we had a wonderful rabbi on campus who was Rabbi Jonathan Dove, who had learned in Arsameh Yeshiva in Israel. And he used to bring over speakers from Arsameh. And that, I got hooked on it. And I wanted to go there for the summer. And then my dear friend, Eli Shear, I didn't want to go on my own, so I tried to convince my friend to go with him. And he had connections with Chabad. Uh, and we went to see Rabbi Aris Safrin, who was Chabad Shlich in London. And something touched me about it. Something touched me about his sincerity. And he started talking about the Tanya funny enough, like, you know, you've got to learn the Tanya. And I'm like, what's that? But somehow um, he managed to convince us to go to Chabad. And how old were you at the time? I was 21. Uh, no, I was 20. So from there you went to Crown That was the Ivy League Torah State Program in the Catskills. Yes, which still exists, I believe. Wow. It's still running. So how long were you at that? It was a summer program. That was like a six-week program, which I just loved. And then at the end, they have this big Fabrang and they try and convince you to stay. And I kind of wanted to stay, but then I didn't want to be like this guy that goes off for six weeks and never comes back because it sounded like a nutcase. I figured, listen, I'll go back to university for another year. And then if I want to come back, it will be a decision like made, uh, you know, not in the spur of the moment. And what, and that's what, parents, I did. what did your parents think? My parents have always been very supportive. Uh, I was studying to be a doctor, which um, which I stopped at some point, so they were a bit worried about that. Um, but they've always been supportive. That's amazing. Yeah. So then when's the first time you came to Crown Heights? It was the summer of Toshin Base. And what did you think? So I, t I turned up in Chabad just after the Rebbe had had his stroke, basically. Wow. So it was, it was uh, you know, we were in mayhem. <laughs> I entered, I entered the hurricane, I entered a whirlwind. And what did you think? Of Grand Heights? Yeah. I loved it. Oh, yeah, really? I, I, listen, I had a bit of a crush on America to start with because when we were 16, our high school switched for a month with a high school in New Jersey called the Montclair Kimberley Academy. And I just loved America. It's like, this place is amazing. There were kids eating pizza in class. I was like, I've got to come to Brown. I want to eat pizza during my classes because the British, Britain's very formal and I'm not really that keen on formality. So, so I already had this kind of crush on America. And then the fact that New York's so Jewish, I mean, London is not like that. You can go to central London the whole day and not see one um, religious Jew. You normally don't. It's, it's a much smaller community and it's a community that's much more concerned about being public. So um, that also um, got me fired up that, like, 
I mean, today I live in New York. I feel as much in New York as anyone else, which I did not feel in London. I felt like, you know, we're kind of guests here. We have to behave and, you know, don't rock the boat. Wow. So what drew you to be Lubavitch to change your entire life for this? Really? I think the, the turning point was the Tanya, to be honest. Really? Yes. Because I had studied this Rambam philosophy, which was very compelling. It's a bit dry, a bit detached. It doesn't involve any emotional work. And so when I discovered the Tanya, it was a mixture of the, it has that philosophical sophistication, but it also has, the Tanya is really a book about, the first book, Kutia Maram, is about emotional work. So I found that very fascinating because it's like a, it's almost like a therapy session when you're learning Tanya for the first time. And then there was also the Kabbalah with the Ten Spheres and this whole um, cosmological spiritual thing, which I did not know existed. And so the, the combination of those three things got me really hooked. I read that you went to philosophy class, though, before this, like in your university. I did. I did. Them. When I was doing medical in medical school, I used to sneak into philosophy classes because I, I, I was desperate for meaning. I was felt like empty inside. How is it different? Philosophy? You know, philosophy, especially academic philosophy, is very detached. So in, in uh, the orthodox community, we try to be the opposite of detached. We want to be engaged. We want to be, you know, thrilled by the material. We want it to kind of spill out into our lives. And so it was, it was lacking that um, element to it. I, I was only doing the Greek philosophy. I never got that very far. <laughs> and so how many... I do like philosophy, though. It still interests me to some extent. How many years later... A few years later, you wrote the Gutnikomish. It wasn't long after you got here. It was. It was about 10 years. So how did I that... first turned up to write, to starting no, publishing the first Gutnikomish. 10 years. Yeah, it was 1992. I turned up and then to that, and then I went back. But I'm saying when I first turned up, 2002, I published the first volume, I think 2002 or 2003. It's about 10 years. My question is, how is that possible? How is it possible that in 10 years, like the Gutnay Chumash has over a thousand Sikhais in there? About a thousand, yeah. So how did it happen? How did you go from being fresh into Crown Heights? There are, there are thousands of people that live in Crown Heights that you're obviously highly intelligent, but how does it come to a point? Did you have Hebrew reading skills already? A little. I could read like slowly and badly. And then 10 years later, you compiled a thousand Sikhites. <laughs> 10 years is a long time. <laughs> it's a long time, but it's also not no, a no, long it, time. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. It's a, I loved the Rebbe Sikhas. I love the Rebbe Sikhas. It was like, it, it really, you know, having gone to Tanya and I discovered the Rebbe Sikhas, it was like a new level of, of sophistication, of um, nuanced thinking, of integrative thinking, pulling different things together. So I was absolutely hooked on it. Uh, I'm a very passionate person. So once I get passionate about something, I've got a lot of, lot of energy behind it. So I put, I, I invested a lot of time and energy into, um, you know, learning Yiddish and learning Hebrew and learning Sikhs. And, um, and at some point I felt like, you know, that little kid in synagogue, I'm thinking about me as a, as a teenager or as a young kid in synagogue who's looking for meaning. I want him to find that meaning in his synagogue. I want him to find this material. Right there, and not have to do this whole long, complicated search and running around. So I kind of wrote, adapted those sikhs as if I was kind of writing for myself, my former self, my earlier self. Wow. 
some like interested, somewhat intelligent, a little tiny bit of background, but nothing major, and just like let's go from there. I also had a huge inferiority complex, outsider complex, because you gotta understand today, you know, we're coming up to 30 years from Gimel Thomas, right? So, so, you know, there's a whole generation of people who have not seen the Rebbe, uh, who did not have that experience, right? When I turned up, I was the only one. Everyone else, <laughs> everyone else had dollars. Everyone else had been to Fabrangans. I was like literally the only person I knew that had not. I did see the, I did see the Rebbe on the balcony when he was sick. Uh, a few times, and I'm not, um, I don't mean to downplay that connection. That's sig- very significant. Uh, the first time someone sees a rabbit, wearing, you know, just to look at a tzaddik is tremendously impactful. But I felt like I'd missed the boat. I mean, my t- the, the, all the people that teaching me had like been to every Fabrengan. <laughs> and they'd been by, you know, multiple doors, and so many of them had yechidus, and they had this immense exposure, and I had nothing. So I had this kind of, um, so there's a story that illustrates where the Frida Kareba had very bad lungs. So when he would for brain, they had, had to limit the amount of people in the room because there wasn't enough air. So this is in the 1940s. The Rebbe was the bouncer, and he had to, like, stop the Bacharim coming in when there were too many people. So when he shut the door, the Bacher got very upset. And the Rebbe said to him, who's more fortunate, the one that got inside and feels, ah, the self-satisfaction I'm in, or the one that's outside and screaming that he wants to come inside? So I had that sense of, like, I want to find out what I missed. So I used to spend hours, so after discovering Lukutisichas, which is like the Rebbe's uh, edited prepared talks, and I discovered the unedited ones, which for me was... It was almost like being at the Fabrengan because you have like all the jokes and all the wow. comments and then like, it's almost kind of, because it's a transcript, it wasn't uh, formal. It's, uh, I love those. I was reading all So it's just a kind of fascination, really, and engagement. And then having the, the background that I did, wanting to, to be a bridge to those who didn't have the opportunity to learn Yeshiva. My student asked me the other day, how old were you at Gimel Tamas? And I was like, how old do you think I am? Mm -hmm. And then I thought to myself, we're actually living in a generation that our relationship with the Rebbe is extremely different. And in that sense, you probably relate. Do you feel like you relate to the new generation in a different way? Completely. Now I see like the the light behind the cloud. Um, Yeah, I totally relate to the post-Gimel Tamas generation. I, as I said, I saw it, but it wasn't like, you know, I don't have serious, I don't know if I or serious exposure. So it was more like a kind of glimpse. And I get it. I totally get what it's like to, to have kind of grown up without that influence. And, you know, I, I connect with the challenges of young people like yourself who kind of, your parents' generation were the ones that had a lot of exposure to the rubber and they were like intoxicated with the rubber and they couldn't imagine how anyone else wouldn't be intoxicated. But then, you know, there's been tremendous difficulty bridging that to the next generation. So, yeah, I, I actually, um, I wouldn't say pleased I didn't have the exposure, but I, I see in hindsight that there was a certain benefit to it. I, I, I feel, I don't know, I just feel I understand people in this generation. Because I asked my mom, and I'm like, what was the rubber like? And she's like, she looked into the rubber's eyes, mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's not an answer. That's <laughs> your emotional experience. Yeah. And... I know that it's a little bit controversial. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I remember when I went to seminary for the first time, I was reading your book. I was reading Joseph Tulushkin's book and everyone was like, 
oh, this is terrible. It's like an Indian not to read books of the Rebbe because it like changes your perception and the Rebbe can't be merely like confined to like a book or a perception of him. Was that something you encountered when you actually like decided to write a book about the Rebbe? I did. I never really understood it, to be honest, because you see, I've been living in the Chabad community for many years. My wife's Chabad, my kids go to Chabad schools. But there's, to some, there's some part of me that doesn't really understand the community because I didn't grow up in it. And so, um, yeah, I totally did not um, understand the whole thing. The, you know, straight after Gimel Towns, actually, I was telling my friends, we've got to write a book about the Rebbe. Like, every great person has a book. Has a book. Like, Marilyn Monroe will have, will has over 300 biographies. Really? Oh, exactly. Good for Marilyn. Like yeah. So... Um, and I was just, and everyone's like, no, you can't do it. It's impossible. There's no way, you know, you can't catch the Rebbe. Just if you try, it's worse than doing nothing. Um, so I figured, yeah, maybe you're right. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't always think I know what I'm talking about. So um, years passed, and then I was just fixing my car. I had a junky car, and there was an Alabavich guy that had a junky car there. And we started talking, and I was just expressing this frustration. I think maybe it was... It's coming up for 20 years since Gimel Thomas already. So, oh, yeah, yeah, 10 years Gimel Thomas. Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, Allah Shalom, said, the Rebbe is becoming a myth. What did he mean by that? He means, like, like you know the Baal Shem Tov, we don't know any historical information about him. Very, very little. I mean, he did live. <laughs> but everything's a story. And, you know, a story gets told and, and, and a story grows a beard. And they, the famous saying about the stories of Baal Shem Tov, if you, you know, if you... Uh, Believe them all, you're foolish, but if you don't believe any, it's heretical, right? So that's, that's a, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, there's a kind of mythical, we don't actually know who he was physically, right? So that's what he's basically saying to happen to the Rebbe. The Rebbe's just becoming all these stories, and there's no actual factual historical narrative. And that really kind of gave me a bad feeling in my stomach, like, we can't do that to a Rebbe. Can't just making him into a myth. So anyway, I was fixing my car, and this guy, I was expressing my frustrations, and this guy says to me, write facts. Just write facts. And you'll be okay. I was like, that's so brilliant. Why don't I think of that? And so that was kind of my guiding principle, just like put the facts down. Try and be careful that what you're saying is actually true because it's backed up by a document or like a, if it's a story, there's ways of determining which things are you know, reliable. So, yeah, I, that was a, uh, also a very made. It was also part of the outsider complex, by the way. Like, I just wanted to know everything about the Rebbe. So when I was writing the Gunnar Chumash, the first volume, I actually gave up in the middle because I had this complex, like, who am I to do this? I like... I wasn't appointed to by the rabbi. I didn't have a conversation with him. I just love the material and want to share it, but I didn't feel worthy. And I kind of gave up. And then um, shortly afterwards, I just figured, listen, you know, let the public decide. I feel I've got something to contribute in terms of, you know, expressing these ideas that hasn't been done before. And it's not up to me. I just put my humble offering out there and see what happens. That's something that our generation, that wouldn't happen in our generation. Really? Because none of us saw the Rebbe. So we all feel a calling mm. from within ourselves. Like no one told us to do anything. Mm. In that sense, that's maybe why you relate. Like we don't have that. We have other complexes. That complex goes behind any creative work. So let's talk about the practical Tanya. Yeah. A little bit about what inspired you to write the book in the first place. Um, that's my first question. And then a little bit about the process, because I read that you 
every other book you said you adapted. Yes. The Chumash was adaptive. And you said that it was called the Practical Tanya. I'll mm. let you say why. Um, for a reason. So mm. firstly, why did you decide to write a practical guide to the Tanya? Um, well, the Tanya was kind of the thing that really got me more than anything else, I would say. More than any individual part of my journey, that was like the most impactful. And um, I noticed that the way Tanya's taught a lot was very kind of nitpicking. Like, why is there a vov here? And why is there, you know, like honing on in like micro details in the text. And I felt that like, you know, the the... the way it being taught also orally and also like in writing was it, we kind of lost the sense that this is a book about worshiping Hashem with your heart and with your mind. It's a how-to book. It's a really like kind of the first self-help book ever, really, at least in Judaism. So um, I wanted to recapture some of that spirit. And also, you see, the Tanya was really... Practical Tanya was really the culmination of a lot of work that I'd done in, in developing a language, a kind of vocabulary of chassidus in English. Because what happened is that the, you know, the early works of translation were very, either they tried to be like very academic and formal, or then you have, um, you know, people that swallowed a thesaurus and they're just kind of spewing out millions of words. And uh, and then you had some translations that um, just sound weird. Like, you know, it says um, in Chapter 5 of Tanya, when an idea is enclosed in another idea, it's enclosed in your mind. Like, no one speaks like that. No one says, like, I had this idea in clothing in my mind yesterday, right? So rule number one with translation adaptation is always don't use a word that people don't know what it means. Like, the, the pe average person does not know what it means. I actually, you know, when I first... Um, the first volume of the Grand Chumash, just to backtrack a second, I was so proud because it looked nice and I wanted to show everyone and a little bit trepidation as well. And I went to uh, the Knesset Shulchan. I stood like in the entrance <laughs> and I just started showing it to people. And then a very big rabbi came along who I knew. I mean, I knew of, but didn't know him personally. And I went up to him. I showed him the book. He looked at it, you know, pages through it. And he shuts it and gives it back to me. He says, this is a Chil Hashem. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It, this actually that's happened. Yeah. And I was like, you yeah, know, I'm British. I can hold it in. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, why do you, <laughs> why do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he said, because you, if you want to make the Rebbe sound impressive, you've got to use long words. And you like made it too simple. But I kind of felt the point is you want to be clear. You don't want to be, uh, this is not an opera that you're trying to, or a poem. It, 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 you want to communicate the idea. So I've always felt that you've got to use language that is actual language that is being used. So I struggled for many years, like teaching chassidus, learning chassidus, recording. You know, how do you translate words? How do you get phrases and put them into kind of normal English? It's much harder than it sounds because... It's, it's easy to make up like a paraphrase and come up with like a, a cool version of what it says, but it's not a translation. If you want to translate the words, very hard. So the Tanya for me was really a development of, of language. I'll tell you why it's so important because, you know, the average bacha is an issue. This is very hard and it's very complicated. 
And let's say he's one of the better students and he enjoys it and he's learning my marim. And then he goes on shluchas. Right? If you don't have a language in English, if you start talking about in clothing and all that stuff, people are going to switch off very quickly. So unfortunately, some shluchim have the experience. But, you know, I try teaching chassidus, but it's just above people's heads. And, and, and you know, because, you know, they asked me what bittel means. And I said, well, you can't translate bittel. Oh, actually, it's self-nullification. I mean, this no one, no one's going to, like, be interested in that stuff, right? <laughs> Sounds like a painful operation. You know, I had a self-nullification today. I'll be better soon. So I think it's kind of tragic that we haven't yet developed, you know, across the entire Chabad community, a very rich and accessible language. So that was really what I was trying to do in the Practical Tanya, to bring it into... Um, and there is, in English, there are spiritual words. For example, the word manifest, which I just thought was some hoity-toity uh, old-fashioned word, you actually say that in... Spiritual people use that word, I'm manifesting. So I was like, okay, I'll use that word. Because it's, it's in the lexicon. It's, it's in the... There is a language of spirituality in English. So um, I work very hard at this. And um, besides the fact that I get emails almost every day of people who are like, you know, I never understood Tanya before. Or I don't understand. Or I'm just discovering it for the first time. I'm talking about it, like Labaraches with white beards have told me that. Uh, and then all sorts of people outside of Labar. So, um, so I was at a wedding. It was about a year, one or two years ago. This lady comes up to me and she says, Again, I always have this complex, like, you know, am I worthy of doing this? I, it's so yeah. comforting to hear this <laughs> because today I I work at a Bacheva Learning Center. Have you heard of it? I have, yeah. It's amazing. Incredible. So I'm subbing for maternity leave and they're learning Samachvav. Okay, so I've never learned Samachvav before. So I walk into this. I'm like, Samachvav, okay, what up, Samachvav? Mm-hmm. Like I learn, I do like Tarar every week. I'm like, oh, Samachvav, like how hard could it be? Yeah. So I walk into this, like I've heard of it, Ranat Samachvav. I walk into this room of like 30, 25 girls, like 20 years old. They all sit and tell me about like, oh, and Kayla Mishtashla is like going <laughs> on and on. I'm like, what is happening? Like you think you know Hasidus, but like all these words like Kavan and the Rashima and then like, and the Halal, I'm like, do we know what we're saying? What's mm-hmm. happening? What's going mm-hmm. on? And I think what you're saying is so true. And I was asking like simple questions, like how do we see that? How is it manifested? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's not a big problem that we have, but it's so important for us. Like we use all these words, like self-nullification, mm-hmm. we're so good at it, like a dwelling place for Hashem or like, the first time I heard like clipper is a covering, we cover. I was like, mm. oh, that makes sense to me. Or like, because we grew up clipper snagger, clipper snagger, mm. clipper snagger. And no one ever said like it covers. It was just like a word that wasn't like, it was just simple. It made mm. sense. What's some words that you cut out? Like what are some words that you found were like completely unhelpful in actually explaining? Most of <laughs> Like which ones? Oh, I have to go. <laughs> Because I think I yeah. think it's so true. There are so many. Like I had a friend that, like, for the first time she came to a Tanya class, and she's like, "I don't understand the English words mm-hmm. because we use these words. We don't even know what we're saying ourselves." And sometimes when I teach my students, I'm like, through working at Mariah, through working at a not religious school, mm-hmm. my whole vocabulary, my relationship with Hasidus completely transformed mm-hmm. right, right. because it didn't work for me to right. come in and say random words that no one knew what actually meant. But the thing is 
if that random word you're using, the, the person that Mariah doesn't understand, you don't really understand it either. Sure not. So you could be saying bittle, bittle, bittle your whole life. You don't know what you're talking about because you don't even know how to translate the word. I want to tell you the story that happened to me because it was kind of the, uh, like, I felt like the rebel was giving me a thank you. Um, I was at a wedding. This lady comes up to me and she says, I'm the daughter of Zalman Posner, Al-Rashon, wow. who was one of the early translators of uh, Kohos material in the 1940s. He was doing it, I think. And um, he was an American boy. There were very few American-born Lubavitchers in those days. And so he was kind of spearheading the communication of, of Chassidus into English. So when the Tanya in English first came out, it's one of the first part of Tanya, which Nissan Mandel did as a, he actually did it as a PhD in Columbia University. And the Rebbe signed off in it. There's like an introduction from the Rebbe where he signs off. So Zama Posner's an Yichidus. And the Rebbe said to him, what do you think of the, trans, you know, the new translation? And he was like, you know, the Rebbe signed off and I'm not going to say, you know, I'm going to, he was uncomfortable because he did have some issues with it, but he just didn't, he didn't feel comfortable saying it. And the Rebbe noticed his hesitation, and the Rebbe said to him, I'm asking you because you're a native, you're American. He says, I'm, the Rebbe's like, I'm not American, so I don't really know if the language is what Americans use. Wow. You're American, you would know that. So his daughter says to me, she says, I think you did it. You found that language wow. that the Rebbe was looking for. Well, that's so that... that um, these little things kind of give you a bit of encouragement. So the, the writing is a lonely profession. Even though you don't know, get emails and occasional podcasts, it's you're sitting alone for hours and hours and hours. And it's amazing because you influence so many people because thousands of books are out there and people, you know, these are Hamash and Tanis, people using them every day. It's not like you just read it, put it on a shelf. Um, but very little trickles back you know, comparatively. And so you know, little things happen. It, it, it's um, got to keep your spirits up, you know. What's your process? Like, how did you actually get to, what did you do? You first read through the Tanya, you read other compilations. How do you even start writing <clears throat> a translation to the Tanya? Well, I, I read it in Chetas many, many times. Uh, I was very familiar. Part, part of it was that I was kind of... Um, you know, every year, it's hard to keep up the excitement because like, I've read this before, i read it before. And then at some point, I'm just kind of mumbling as Tanya. And I'm thinking, this is so sad because when I first read this book, it changed my entire life. Now it's just like, it's not as exciting to me anymore. So I want to kind of re renew my vows and, and, and kind of love it again. So that was part of it. Um, we have a wealth of material on Tanya. Like every... Nearly every serious mashpia or teacher has like mountains of tapes. Now they will be digitized. They're very easy to access. So it's more like what you're going to, uh, you know, what are you going to exclude really? Is the point. Wow. Because if you put all that commentary in, it's going to be um, too heavy. So one thing that I, um, like I'm a big empath. I pick up, you know, people's you know, emotional connections. And this might sound a bit weird, but this is my process. I actually empathize with the reader. So what I do is I write something, and the next I read it as if I'm the reader. I'm like, is this making sense? Or I'll give you another example. Supposing I'm translating a bit, and it's getting a little bit obscure. 
You know, in this um, practical tone, for those people not seen it, so basically the way um, interpretation is done nowadays, you use a mixture of bold and non-bold. So bold is like the actual words of the Tanya, and then for extra clarity, you add in words in non-bold. So how much do you add in? You can overdo it. And then like, you know, it's oodles and oodles of commentary. That's also no good. So I use like my empathic side to sense, is the reader getting lost? Am I losing them? And if I feel I'm losing them, then I have to, you know, bring them back. And uh, I've had people, I had a um, close friend told me that um, just as I'm, just as I'm losing, um, losing it, you, you pop in every time. That's amazing. So that's, that's really the process. It's not, if it is just like academic, detached, and I try to be, you know, academically rigorous and, and uh, it's not just like a, for brain gun, but I'm always kind of emotionally tuned into um, the reader. Well, the Tanya is emotional. <laughs> but in all my work, it's like that, yeah. That's true, yeah. There is something. It's like they, like you said, the first self-help book. It's trying to... I'll try, but in the beginning of the Tanya, since he's so overwhelmed by everything that people are writing to him mm-hmm. and that he just needs to put this book out as like a one one book for all our emotional problems. Yeah. And in a way, the Tanya is a very emotional book. It is. I actually, when the book came out, I was lecturing around the country and um, I came up with this narrative that the author was such an empath that he managed to put empathy in a book. And that's why the book's relatable. So then when I was telling a story, I noticed when I said those words, the empaths in the audience nodded. Like certain people nodded. I'm like, hey, they're empaths. That's why they're, you know, they're, mm. Interesting. <laughs> so I went up to this lady after this lecture and I was like, you're an empath, aren't you? She's like, how'd you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I told her this whole thing. So I was doing it at every lecture and people, it worked every single time. People were nodding. Wow. And then I gave a lecture in uh, somewhere in New Jersey and one person nodded. Okay, you know. <laughs> Because an empath here. So I went up to her and I was like, You're an empath, aren't you? And she's like, oh. <laughs> I'm going to class in the entire state. <laughs> I was like, What? She says, Oh, I feel so violated. <laughs> so I'm sorry. And then, so I stopped, I stopped doing the kind of game Everyone's after very that. sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> Who are your role models? Good question. Let me think about that. <laughs> Who are your Tanya role models? Like you said, that there are so many Mashpian that have. Well, the master was Rabbi Al Khan, who passed away recently, very great lost to Chabad. He managed, you see, it's very easy to innovate and it's very easy to be traditional, but it's hard to innovate within tradition. So he managed to get like the, the existing Tanya and the explanations that were kind of available and the traditional interpretation, but there were gaps. He managed to fill in all those gaps, kind of innovating within the tradition. And he was very brilliant. So I think that's, that was the main resource that I used. But his tendency is to, you know, pontificate over you know, small things and go off on tangents. So I had to be very careful. That was a very great resource. And then we have Lessons in Tanya, which was originally um, edited by the Rebbe. Wow. It was originally a radio show in Yiddish. And the Rebbe put a lot of notes there, so they were helpful. And then there's Rishima. There's a lot of resources. There's um, notes, Rishima's, the Rebbe's notebook, when he wrote a lot of comments in Tanya. Uh, but it, it's all like, what do you want to include? Uh, uh, Mindel's Tanya 
he wrote an introduction, which the Rebbe ed- in English, which the Rebbe edited. And he wrote that the Tanya is a systematic theology, which kind of makes sense. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's got a structure. And the Rebbe crossed out the word systematic. And the Rebbe wrote that it's a guide to survey Hashem with the mind and with the heart, with the heart and mind. I can't remember which way around. Wow. So that's, when I saw that, that's what the Tanya is. Because systematic theology, first of all, it's not that systematic, I guess, but it's also, it's, uh, that's like a textbook. It's like, you know, these textbooks of the Chicago Guide to Punctuation. You know, it's very dry. This is like, it's, it's a manual of, of how to serve Hashem. So I was always trying to, um, so I call it the practical Tanya, because it's like the actual part that's going to move us, not just the getting lost in um, details. Did you ever ask Rabbi Alkan questions? Um, I just use what's out there. No, I just, you know, he he done it all in his tapes. He has a series, there's hundreds and hundreds of tapes in Yiddish. And uh, someone made a book out of it. It's better if you actually listen to it on the tape. There were others also, like Rabbi Chaim Shalom Deitch in Eretz Yisrael, I found very good, his, his Tanya commentaries. And there are others, which I, I mentioned them all in the book, one of the other things that I use. But it, it's more about, there wasn't an actual commentary doing what I wanted to do, which is bringing out the practical, the emotional, the, how, how the tan is stirring you, how it's um, captivating you. That, you know, so I had to kind of emphasize that part myself while drawing on all the sources. So what what was some things in the Tanya that, what's the most surprising thing that Baltrava says that surprised you? Was there something in the Tanya that you were like, that you can recall that was like, I don't know, an aha moment? Well, it's full of ahas. The, the thing that really struck me the most is, you know, we, we always quote the chapters um, 36, 37 about Dir B'tachtonim, which means that we're trying to make a home for God in this world by doing a phys- like a physical act of a mitzvah in this world. Um, and then we get the sense of just hamais or ikka, just get the mitzvah done, doesn't matter whether you're in the mood or not. And that is so emphasized in our culture. But then in the next few chapters, he then takes the other side of the coin and he quotes the idea of mitzvah belay kavana kuguf belay neshama, that a mitzvah without kind of intent or feeling or presence is like a body without a soul. And it kind of struck me, that's what chassidus really is. Chassidus is a kavana movement. We're here to emphasize the joy and the connection and the intensity. Doing it without kavana is a bit yevet. That's not the, that's not the ideal. And the Alter Rebbe, he uses the word uh, comfort. I want to comfort those. You know, if all you manage to do is that, it's also very, very meaningful, but it's not, it's not like the main thing. So I, I kind of felt like we should be stressing that part more. So what do you think about Kabbalah's all? Kabbalah's all is important because without that, you're not really connecting to God. It's just about you. It's just basically narcissism. One of the critiques of um like modern day new age spirituality, uh, which I'm not knocking. It's not, I don't like uh, knocking things. So the, the criticism that is um, sometimes put forward is it's just a kind of narcissism. It's all about you and you and you and you and, you, and you're not really getting outside your own bubble. Um, or it has that kind of tone to it. So without Kabbalah's Earl, which means accepting the authority of God, which is the foundation. Yeah, you don't really have anything. It's all about you. But then that's just a, uh, that's just opening the door. It's not the whole idea of connecting with God. It's just without that. It's like if you don't plug in that microphone, there'd be no podcast, but we've got to have a podcast. 
And how did you translate Bittle? Yeah, you put him on the spot. I don't remember. <laughs> Sorry. I'm so curious <laughs> now. Now, like, I have a trillion I'll get the questions. Book. I'll get the book. Of you. No, no, no. It's okay. Yeah. Bittle is about transcending the ego, not nullifying it. That's the big mistake. I like that. So what happens is when you're born, you have no ego. A baby actually thinks it's the same body as the mother. Interesting. And then when the baby gets taken away from the mother who's feeding the baby, the baby's like, what's going on? Like, the part of me has disappeared. And it's very painful. And like when you're a little kid, the world's not a very safe place. So you have to erect an ego, which is your like your shell that protects you from the outside. And it's a, it's a shell that divides people because, you know, there's only one candy. It's either me or you. So my ego tells me to take the candy. Then what happens is we go through adulthood with our ego. And um, it's what therapists call a adaptive strategy becoming maladaptive, which means the ego was great as a defense when you weren't safe in the world. But now you're an adult. Life is not about just you. It's not just about independence. It's about interdependence. Humans are hardwired for connection. We thrive off community, right? We thrive off relationships. And so you can't do any of that if you've got this huge wall up. So what Bittle is, is transcending that ego so it becomes a semi-permeable membrane. So every cell of your body has a kind of defining boundary, but the boundary lets it's semi-permeable. It's not completely permeable. It doesn't let everything in, but there is a flow, right? There is a flow between. So if you're in a relationship with another person, there's got to be a you and there's got to be a me, but there's also got to be some fluidity between us that it's just not, you know, it's not just about me. Like there's a joke about it. And they this in a relationship that says, you know, we've been talking about me uh, for the past hour. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Right? <laughs> some relationships can just be like that. Right? So, so, Kind of mature adult life is tra transcending the ego, but not destroying it, making it semi-permeable. And then we can kind of do what we're supposed to be doing, and that's actually connecting with each other and making the world a better place rather than attacking each other. One of the things my students always stress about, and I think sometimes I think, I mean, a lot of the time, do you think the Alter Rebbe asks too much of us? Does the Alter Rebbe ask? What do you mean by that? Like the whole point is to be a Benini. And like that's our, that's the goal. That's where we're meant to be, in some sense. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. He's he's making a point. He's making a point. Okay. He's just he's it's just there's no things debated. It's just a term, right? It, 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 it's a structure to help us understand people. People are more complex than terms. Like, are you a Tzaddik, you're Russia, you're Bayani? But the terms are useful because it helps us understand phases. So the idea of Bayani is that mastery just over behavior is significant. That's what he's saying. And that's a, that's a, um, a uh, realistic goal. Okay. So actually, he's making it more easy, not harder. He's, he's saying what's realistic and what's not realistic. So it's control thought, speech, and action, not changing your whole personality. Well, changing personality is also important, but I'm saying if you just manage to, to uh, you know, what they call it, or be orthoprax, uh, not orthodox, you just you know, do the practice. Have you ever heard that? No. You know what, what it means? That? It means you just do everything, but there's no spirit behind it. There's no intent behind it. Practice is just the action, the behavior. Your behavioral Jew. Uh, but your mind somewhere else. So he's validating that and says that's real. If you if you're kind of holding, even if like 
that's not your entire self, but you have moments. Everyone has moments of that, right? So in those moments, you got to, uh, you can realize that there's a validity to what you're doing. There's one line where he, he uses the first, uh, um, the first tense and he's, he's, it's about the Bainini, uh, who's dominating. And then afterwards, like, like he loses his passion for God because busy doing stuff in the world. <laughs> so is that authentic? Because it kind of, he lost it. And the Altareba says that, you know, I think it's about that point. It's, um, he says, like, I, I declare, uses the first yeah. tense, like, that this is genuine. So he was really trying to um, kind of come down to our level. I find it actually uplifting, not that he's pre presenting something. You can't just, like, if it's very literalist, like, if you do one thing wrong, you're going to bang in the I don't think that's the emphasis. No. And what do you think was the, what's the overall message of the Tanya? What is the, if you had to explain Tanya, elevator pitch. For the Tanya, what would that be? Well, let's just call it chassis in general, okay? Okay. Yeah. Um, it accesses the subconscious. Okay, what do you mean by that? I mean that. Let me tell you an interesting fact. I actually have it on a... This is, this is a scientific paper about consciousness, okay? Those who are watching on... Wait, do you have this on YouTube? Yeah. Okay. So they worked out the human brain like it's computing power. Okay. So the computing power of the conscious, that's like what you're aware of, is 45, sorry, between 10 and 60 bits per second. Okay. So to read a book takes 45 bits a second. Okay. So you could basically do one thing. Okay. What do you think the processing power of the subconscious is? Much faster. How much? 10? I don't know. I've never thought about this before. It's 11,200,000 bits per second. You hear that? So you're basically taking... So you've got this super computer in your head. Well, it's not like a computer, it's a brain. And our consciousness is using like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Okay? And so the Tanya essentially is a guide to living based on the idea of the spheros. So the spheros is not an innovation of the Tanya, it goes back all the way to Zohar, basically, and it's, it's throughout what so, so let me tell you something else that's also very striking. Carl Jung, who's the father of modern-day psychology, probably the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. I mean, Freud's more famous, but like actual... He's been denounced a lot. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Jung, when I first heard this, it blew me away, and it still blows me away every time I think of it. On his 80th birthday, they interviewed him. And he says at the end, it's printed in a book. You could go Google this. He says, everything, I'm quoting it now, everything that I taught was anticipated by a rabbi. And his name was Rabbi Dovbeh of Mizrich, and he was a very wise man. I mean, it's a cool statement. What is he saying? Everything? Do you know how much Jung taught? It's like a whole shelf. <laughs> what is he saying? So I thought about this a lot, and and also like, what was he reading? Was he did he read the Tanya? You can read Hebrew. So what was he reading? He was uh, Swiss, you know. He spoke everything was in German. I think. He wasn't Jewish. No, no, he was the son of a pastor. Uh, but he was fascinated with Kabbalah, by the way. Off topic, but yeah, he he had a dream that Teferis married Malchus, and he said it was like the most amazing experience he ever had. Or something. You go look it up. 
I mean, he was into many other things. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be away from media. Carl Jung. He was into all mythologies and spiritual systems and spiritual traditions, including uh, Kabbalah. So what does he say? Like, it sounds like an exaggeration. It sounds like the exaggeration that we've made, but he said himself, he says, everything I said was anticipated. So, and if you just think about it, the Alter is sitting there with the Magid a hundred years before Freud, okay? A hundred years before psychology exists. And they're right. They're discussing human psychology. Like what's going on inside the spirit. So this is what I think possibly that what Jung was saying. That basically, what's the difference between Kabbalah and Chassidus? This, this question asked many, many times. And the answer is actually ridiculously simple. I'll put it like this. Chassidus is the psychological turn in Kabbalah. So if you read the Zohar, it almost never talks about the spirits in you. Right? It's, the spirits are always in Hashem, in Atsilus, right? up there in God. They're never in you. Um, and even that, I would say never, occasionally the idea pops up. But before Chassidus, it's all about understanding the maps of God. But isn't the remark like Torah Devar is all about how the spirits reflect inside us? Yeah, but I'm saying uh, if you've got all the Kabbalistic books, put them on a shelf, like the beat. The remark was most like of all the Kabbalists, he was closest to Sivas Really? So he had that kind of Chabad, you know, intellectual processing. But anyway, it's very, it's not a strong emphasis, just put it that way. It's, it's an occasional mention. When you're about Tanya and he introduces you to the Sphiris, he says, Chachma, and he's talking about you, Chachma, <laughs> your inspirational thinking. So it's like he, he doesn't even say, oh, well, the spirits on God, but they're also in us. It's like the, he starts with them being in us. And so in Chassidus, you have this tremendous emphasis of um, how the human psyche is functioning based on the spirits. Now, how do you say spirits in English? So it's basically what Jung called archetypes. And we'll get back to the subconscious we now. We played that game, archetypes. Yes, 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 <laughs> At yes. <your> house. Yeah. <laughs> so I've since found out what an archetype is. <laughs> uh, so basically, the conscious brain, which is working at sixty bits per second, is rational, logical, left brain, uh, empirical, all that kind of stuff, right? The subconscious doesn't function like that. It's on a different software. It's it's thinking in stories. That's why the story is the most influential form of communication. Stories dreams. captivate. When Hashem gave us the Torah, he gave us stories because he knew <laughs> that if it was just a bunch of rules, you know, it wouldn't be as compelling. So, you know, we have a story about ourselves and about our childhood and about our parents. And then we have a story about, you know, life. And then everything's really a story in the subconscious. So what is a story? So, you know, that they say there's only like five movies, they're all the same. You ever heard this? No, but it's yeah. for sure true. Yeah, yeah. So, but what an archetype really is, it's the bits that make up the story. So supposing you're watching a film and, you know, very soon you work out who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, who you want to win, who you want to lose. So how do they do that? How do they get everyone in the audience to choose the same person? Because the there's an archetype villain. There's an archetype hero. There's an archetype warrior. These are all just bits. So in their pristine form, they have no face, no clothing, no, no details. It's just, the, it's just the, the core building blocks of the mind. And the way wow. we build stories is by getting all these archetypes together. And then when you see it in the movie, it, it kind of rings in your head 
that that's an archetype. So it's actually speaking to your subconscious. So the ultimate archetypes are the 10 spheres. That is the kind of the building blocks of all the archetypes. So what the outer rebbe is actually doing in the Tanya is telling you how to mine the subconscious will. Because think about it, the question that everyone has when they learn the Tanya, it says that um, you have Chochma Bina Vadas, which you know, is translated badly as wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. <laughs> but it's, it, let's just forget about it. It's something in your brain, right? It's mental. And then you have all the others. And then you have Machshava Dibba thought, speech, and action. We're told that Machshava thought is not the same as Chochma Bina Vadas, right? Because Machshava is only a, a lavush, it's only a garment, it's only something superficial. Whereas the Chochm of Bina Vadas, the spirits in your soul, that, that's something else. And I was like, well, what's the difference? Like, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, that's kind of, you know, how do I kind of think if it's not in Machshava? Because he's talking about the archetypes. He's talking about the building blocks in your subconscious that makes certain things bubble through into your conscious thought. So when you're learning Chassidus or Kabbalah or Pneumus Torah, you're actually going directly into those parts of your subconscious and reprogramming them and giving them holy archetypes and holy energy with which to build themselves. It's extremely powerful. That's why, you know, but you, you kind of, you have these people, they learn one page of Tanya that, and they're hooked, they suddenly become from, and cause there's something very powerful about that. Whoa, that is yeah. the coolest thing. That's crazy because the Tanya, is about the archetypes inside of us. Like it's about the good guy and it's about the bad guy. And there's a story. It's telling you a story about yourself. When I was teaching my students at Mariah, I would tell them about like my Shrabane across the sea and they would laugh at me. They were like in 12th grade. They were like 18. The last <laughs> time they heard that the sea was crossed was when they were like in kindergarten. They were like, you believe that miss? It's not a true story. I'm like it's a true story. <laughs> I try to bring Parsha, like it just didn't go. Mm -hmm. And then I would bring in Tanya. I'm like, you have a godly soul, you have an animal soul. No one was challenging me because it's the truth. It's what you experience on a belief system. Mm -hmm. It's the story of yourself. It's what you, you know, these archetypes, you live with them, you experience it. Everyone knows what it means to have a good, a good inclination and a bad inclination. Everyone knows what it feels like to be depressed or to be happy or to feel not motivated or apathetic or inspired or bitter. Everyone, mm -hmm. that's your experience of life. <laughs> and I think Tanya is transformative. And especially like it's your test kiss leave this week. It's transformative because the altar ever understands us. It's a story of us. And I love that archetype example because... It's actually more relevant now than ever because um, the conscious stuff, your left brain processing, you can outsource that to India <laughs> to on Fiverr.com. Uh, yeah, or to AI. Yeah. AI. I was on a, a panel discussing Torah and AI and uh, I was talking about, you know, is it going to please rabbis because it'll make a better sermon than you. And I suddenly had an epiphany and, and I said it. It's like the AI has no subconscious. So yeah, it might be better than your 45 bits a second, but it ain't better than your 11,200,000 bits a second, which is not even thinking in binary or code. It's thinking in archetypes. It's thinking, it's non-linear thinking. It's poetic thinking. It's symbolic thinking. So that's the part of the human that's going to be more valuable. Just in the workplace, it's going to be more valuable. Just to succeed in life, you're going to have to kind of be more in acts. And also to succeed in relationships, by the way, because, you know, when they, um, in the DP camps after the Second World War, you know, easy, okay, boy, girl, get married, okay? And then, next generation, 
it was also pretty easy because people didn't like have particularly high expectations. But you know what else? They didn't really have a lot of self-awareness. They were in kind of recovery mode because, like, they just had the whole... Well, but it was not just the Jews, by the way. It's the whole culture. Um, somehow, I don't know when this happened. I think it's about 2010, but I might be wrong. <laughs> it happened to me. I, I, something dawned on me when Brene Brown made her first speech on TED before okay. anyone had ever heard of her. And I watched it. It was like, oh, my God, something, there's some major shift happening in the entire world. And... What it is, is like our generation cannot exist without self-awareness. It's not just like, you know, maybe I want to be more self-aware, maybe I'll just manage without it. It's just like it's not an option anymore. Whereas previously, like your parents' generation, it wasn't really that high. Of course, there were some people that had it. It was kind of more of a choice or... But you can get by without it. You just kind of, you know, carry on. Oh, you're a bit traumatized. Well, just leave that traumatized part of you over there and just use the bit that works and carry on and be strong. That was the attitude, right? But now we can't do that anymore because we want to bring our whole selves to the conversation. We want to uh, uh, heal generational trauma. We want to uh, um, get into our subconscious and get that 11 million bits, you know, to, to, to really access it. So I think now more than ever, both professionally and just personally, um, you know, the, the subconscious is becoming more and more important. Why do you think that is? Because of industrialization and the fact that, like, maybe those creativity is far more essential? Is that why? Or generational trauma? Or is it a bit of everything? I think it's, first of all, because we're coming close to Mashiach. So Mashiach is when everything surfaces, all the debts come out. And it's also just on a simple level that, um, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of, of, needs. of needs, you know, uh, where you have first world problems, you know, that you had a problem, your wire wasn't fitting in the laptop and, <laughs> and, and you know, those kind of problems. I bought a, a, a pair of pants and the belt wasn't, you know, the, these things really annoy us because thank God, uh, you know, our needs are met and we're able to go in. But, it, it, it's, but it's something about the, the generation, the moment where we, we've, suddenly just gone inward. And I mean, when I grew up, I mean, it wasn't England, but if you went to therapy, something's wrong. You would say, you want to talk to that person? It's like, oh, they're crazy. Right? Now, if you're not going to therapy, <laughs> something's say, wrong. what's wrong with you? <laughs> right? It's true. So we've, we've come to this moment where kind of being in contact with the depths of ourselves, with, you know, and our, our traumas are there, our, our emotions are there also. That's so powerful. And you know what? The actual, the, the conscious part's broken down. If you go on social media or on Twitter or anything, there's no conversation anymore. It's just knee-jerk reactions. It's just clickbait, right? Everyone's just saying one line to get you triggered. The trigger's coming from the unconscious, from the subconscious. Wow. It's, it's, it's somehow churning up your fit. So we don't even have intelligent conversations anymore in the public sphere. It's just about, can, can we trigger someone else's uh, uh, unconscious patterns? So... There has never been a time more important than to um, study spheres, especially as they relate to human psychology, which is what Tanya, as it later developed, to Chabad Chassidus. Spheres, no one really knows how to translate it. The Ramak has like eight translations of spheres. It could be like sapphire, the word sapphire in English, meaning like brilliant, shining. But one of the translations is sipur, story. Oh, I love that. And just think about it. Cool. If an archetype is the building block of the story, so 
and the spheres is the building blocks of the archetypes, or they are the core archetypes, then it really is. They're stories. No. Spheres are stories. Now I want to play that game again. <laughs> something. No, seriously. Wow. So what's chesed? What's the archetype? Well, here's the thing. Um, the Zohar, like almost never, there's always huge, like 1600 pages long, right? It almost never uses the name of the spheres. So uh, chesed would be right arm. Chesed would be uh, the color white because it's evocative of mother's milk. Um, so each sphera is given like 10 symbols and almost never called by its technical name. And when I first kind of was kind of experiencing that, I thought, like, this is really annoying. Why isn't it just... <laughs> and all the commentary is trying to work out what it's actually talking about. And then it dawned on me that Chesed is just a label. We don't really know what we're talking about. Right arm is a symbol, right? It's the first page of the Zohar. It says that the Shekhinah is a flower. And it talks about the different petals and the... 13 petals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so what it's trying to say is the Rambam taught there's nothing you can say about God because whatever you say will be wrong. You can't say God is great because then you're going to think of like Trump saying make America great, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, so you've got to tarnish it with some human thing. You could say he's he's not, God's not stupid. You could say what he's not, but then you're not really saying anything. It's called the theory of negative attributes, right? which is in the guy for the place. Isn't that the Rambam's whole... Yeah, that's his whole thrust. Not. So Chesedus Kabbalah is the complete opposite. You can say anything you want. Shekhinah is a flower, Bina is a womb, uh, Teferis is a heart, uh, uh, you know, all these things, including like all the different parts of the anatomy. So how does one ever formally answers the objection of the Rambam? It doesn't anticipate it. So where is this all coming from? Because it, it's very simple. It's saying when you use the subconscious, it's always in symbolic thinking. Wow. You're never going to take it literally. You always understand that uh, a, a symbol is a kind of physical depiction of a story. Like, what's art? Why is art so amazing? Because art is from the subconscious, but it took a physical form that we can actually look at with our senses. It's kind of bridging the subconscious with the conscious. I don't know how we got onto this, but yeah, the symbolism is really, we need to get back to more symbolism and just sit with the symbols, think about them, because um, the names of the spheres, they're just kind of labels. They don't really tell you that much. And it explains why the altar of loved Mashalim. Like, exactly, if you yeah. look at Lakote Taratar art, there's always a mushal for everything. Mm -hmm. And that you can't really learn Hasidus without Mashalim. Otherwise, you're just learning about like lights. Like, it doesn't really like make sense in any. This was very controversial at the time. Really? Yeah, of course. Because the mashalim are um, limiting. Basically, they're trying to bring the teachings of the Arizal into. So the Arizal just taught, like, the Havdal, the subway map of the heavens. And he didn't tell you what anything meant. He just gave this very intricate description. So the, the mashalim are really bringing out the meaning of these Kabbalistic uh, terms. And um, that's a very audacious move. Because the Arizal did not reveal those meanings. So the, um, I'll give you an illustration. There was a influential figure in Kabbalah in the 20th century called Rabbi Yehuda Ashalag, who wrote a commentary on the Zohar called the Sulam commentary. So he was a, uh, Chassid, Polish Chassid 
in Europe. He got interested in Kabbalah. He found someone to teach him, and then, but then he wanted to go and like learn serious Kabbalah. So he went to Eretz Yisrael. There's been Yerushalayim for a long time. Uh, Kabbalah yeshivas going back to like 1700s. Okay. So he went to uh, these places where they're studying the Kabbalah of the Rizal. And they learn a bit. And then he's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what's a marshal for? Well, you know, can you explain it? And they're like, well, the, the, the Rizal didn't tell us the meaning. So how are we supposed to know? <laughs> so he's getting frustrated. Because he's learned chesiris, so he knows. You know, chesiris is, is trying to give these mashal the meaning behind the symbols. Right? So he's like, "Well, do you think the Arizal knew the meaning?" So they look at each other and they say, "Probably not, because he would have taught us." <laughs> so then he's getting really furious. He says, "Well, Arizal was taught by Elio Al Novi. Do you think Elio Al Novi knew the meaning?" So they look at each other and they say, "Maybe." But the Arizal definitely didn't, and he didn't tell us. So we we definitely we just we read the text and that's it. We don't understand the significance of these terms, how they relate to us as human beings. This is just talking about very detailed maps of the heavens. So the, the Mashalim is a very audacious move because it's going against a strong tradition that Lurianic Kabbalah, the Kabbalah of the Rizal, is like the final word in Kabbalah, and that you can't really add to it because that that's like the ultimate achievement. So in that sense, the Tanya is very controversial. It's like how it relates to you. Yeah, that's part of the Alter Rebbe being in jail, by the way, because the, the, the normal narrative is just kind of revealing too much. The Alter Rebbe, actually, this is brought in the, also in the name of Rabbi Nachman, the same idea. It probably happened to them both. The Alter Rebbe once said he learned the whole Etzchaim, which is basically the, the main theoretical teachings of the Rizal, and he said it's a Musa book, wow. which, like, that's like saying... I read the phone book. No one knows what a phone book is anymore. <laughs> it used to be a phone book with phone numbers. It's, in it. <laughs> it's like saying, I read the phone book and it was a great story. There's no story in the phone book. So if you read the Arizal, there's no story there. It's just technical. I mean, the Havel is not a phone book, but it's technical, right? So what's Alter Rebbe saying? It's a book of Musa. What he's saying is that he gets the meaning of it. He understands what it means to us as humans. And he did fill in those gaps. And the Rebbeim after him did fill in those gaps. And that's why uh, Chassidus is so especially nourishing and has a certain thing that the, the prior um, Kabbalistic systems did not. That kind of brings it down to a very relatable level, even though these concepts of the heavens. What makes Chabad Chassidus so special or so different? Basically because it has more Lurianic content. Uh, the the Balshemte did not want any of the results teachers spread in public. And the Maggid started doing it, and the Baal Shem told him off. The Rizal didn't want it. Well, yeah, I don't know. Who knows what it is? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that's what it says. I don't know. Um, that's complicated. But um, Why is it complicated? Because he also wrote Mitzvah of Farsim Zay Sachochma. These secret groups. And mm-hmm. it's very yeah, it was elitist and secretive, yes. yes. So what, what Chabad Chassidus does is it tries to bring back the Lurianic underpinnings of what the Baal Shem Tov was saying. So when the Baal Shem Tov was teaching and the Talmud and the Baal Shem Tov, it was more um, divrei Torah, which were very uplifting because they the, have the spirit of chassidus. But he didn't teach it in the context of the Kabbalah that it had sprang out of. There are many reasons for this. You, you had the Shabbat Tzvi movement. When the Baal Shem Tov was alive, you had the... Um, yeah, you had the um, similar movement. So Frankism, Frankism Jacob yeah. Frank. So, you know, 
It's a little traumatic, <laughs> traumatic for the Jewish people. It was, it was difficult. So the Baal Shem Tov felt you've got to keep it simple. The Alter Rebbe had the, uh, well, it was a certain, um, I don't know what it is, audacity, or you know, had a new soul, so he felt he had to do something new. He made a major move, and that is that he wanted to put it in the context of some of the Kabbalistic thinkings. So, Kabbalah doesn't have like a whole Kabbalah of the results. Much, much more complicated, say it has. Uh, 10%. Okay, I'm just making this up, like, just for illustrative purposes. Has a small chunk of it, but it takes chunks of it and shows with, as you said, with Mashalim, with relatable stories, what is the meaning behind it. And that's why the Alter Rebbe said when he's read it time, this is must, I understand the meaning behind what the, because the, the Ariza only taught the Mashal. He didn't give the Nimshal. He only gave like the, the, you know, the, the physical, symbol without explaining the meaning behind it. So I would say that Chabad Chassidus is a very um, advanced way of understanding Kabbalah because it's going back to the uh, meaning behind the Lurianic teachings. And it's Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, so mm-hmm. my question is, I grew up with friends that like always learnt the Ramchal and were really into Mosar, and like every time as Lubavitch is like, no one even knows what that is. And like, um, we're all obsessed with the Tanya. Like you mm-hmm. can never say anything bad about the Tanya. What have you engaged with the Ramchal? Like, have you ever yeah. looked at any Mossar teachings? And like, what is the primary differences between the I actually read Derach Hashem before I read the Tanya. That was also very exciting to me, by the way. I mean, if you want the long version, <laughs> I wrote notes on every chapter and I was obsessed with it. Yeah. The Ramchal is kind of, there's a lot of similarities with Chabad because he's also going to kind of, um, explaining what's going on behind the Kabbalistic symbols in, in a kind of more rational and philosophical way. So he, I think he's a kind of precursor to Chabad in a sense. Really? Yeah, a lot of similarities. And what's the main difference? Is it Kabbalistic? It's a bit more rational. It's a bit more kind of in the in the philosophical mode. So you would and, say, and le, le, there's not as many Mishraeli anymore. Like, so you would say Tanya was like your favorite book to write. Is that? Was that like choosing children? Yeah, I, don't know. I can't. It's like choosing children. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But in a way, I in a way, I'm proud of it the most because it kind of unlocks something that was not there before, which is like a, a lexicon of chassidus, which I I feel like was a uh, like a personal achievement. Where I was like, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. So I just put series of my own words. My own words aren't that amazing. It's just no one had really done it before. Would you write a Hasidic dictionary? You know, that's a good point. No, because dictionaries are really boring. But I do think we need to revolutionize the way we study Hasidus. I agree. Because one of the difficulties of Chabad Hasidus is it's very late in the development of Kabbalistic ideas. So it's it's building on something which was building on something. It's building on... Uh, you know, the Arizal, who was building on the pre-existing Kabbalah, who was building on the Zohar. So unless you know a little bit of the historical context of what's going on and what ideas come from where, it's just like this big charm, and it can get very confusing. We, we need to develop some sort of system that uh, enables um, us to get through a lot of that complexity. Because also, Chassidus, besides the Tanya, which is the Tereshavik Sava Chassidus, it was like the written Torah, the rest of Chassidus were oral presentations. So oral presentation, you know, I bought a book on Amazon a few weeks ago, and it was just some guy's speech typed out. And I was like, I couldn't read it because it's not, ri- not written like a book. So we've got to remember that all of my Maurim, except Tanya, 
they're all presentations. So the, you know, when you're sitting there with the Rebbe and he's telling, he's giving the mime, uh, it's very uplifting and you will chazer afterwards. But in terms of how to record information and how to teach information in a book, it wasn't made as a book. So therefore, I think there needs to be a lot of tools to empower people with the basics without boring the pants off them, basically. Because if you just go through Sadish Dalshlus and just go through terms, it gets very dry and boring. You want to really um, understand. If you don't understand what Chassidus is adding, you don't understand Chassidus. If you just like read it, okay, this is inspiring, this is great, I want to share it. But it, it, it didn't start in a vacuum. It was doing something with the additionally existing material. I think without that context, it becomes very confusing. That's really amazing that you wrote that you wrote a translation to the Tanya. I think if you don't understand the Tanya, like there's a holistic journey through the Tanya, correct? Mm -hmm. And I think especially in high school, we learn the first few prakim, we get into it, but there's like a there's a journey at present, and um, I think that's really cool. It's ma I would call it magic. It's magic. I think it's magic. Why? Because you know, loads of people have tried to like sum up the ideas of the Tanya in their own words, or a summary in Kitsurim, all these things, they always, I don't know, I never found them very good. Um, because somehow, and this is why I didn't do an adaptation of the Tanya, there's a magic in the text. Really? Yeah. What is it? I don't know, it's magic. There's, so, there's something about the words, just the words themselves, that stir up the soul, stir up the subconscious, whatever you want to be. It, it, it's, there's something very evocative about the text. Which is, which is not, it can be captured a little bit in translation, but it's not captured in an adaptation. I, I, I met a lady once who, uh, 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 who, who grew up totally secular, Israeli, totally secular, didn't know, didn't do, and not, nothing, no Yom Kippur, nothing, didn't believe in, in the soul, never mind God, okay? Wow. And she read the Tanya and she just burst into tears and then really? became of Rome. I mean, that's a short version of the story, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's that powerful. We get so stuck in the concepts, I think. I mean, I get so stuck in the concepts. It's time to go That's back good. to the text, you're saying. I'm just talking about like why I chose to translate it rather than adapt it. Because I don't, the translation is much harder than adaptation. Much harder. Was it emotional doing this book? Very. Wow. Yeah. So what's your next book? Nah. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I'm so curious. <laughs> so what's your most recent book that you just put? Tanya. Yeah, That's your three books. Tanya. Oh, three, right. Yeah. There's another two. And what's yeah. the difference between, look at, like, what what was the style is very different. Of the different books of Tanya? Yeah. Yeah, because they're different books. I mean, they're not really, Tanya's a bunch of books stuffed together. But uh, different parts appeal to different people. You know, some people, Shariyah uh, Muna, the second book, which is more about kind of understanding God, basically. It's a book yeah. about God. It touches, like, Different people. That can touch someone who's deeply spiritual. I know someone who was going to go to an ashram, young Jewish guy, and his father said to him, you know, why don't you find some Jewish spirituality? So he's like, there is no Jewish spirituality. Buddhism. And so his father's like, well, I think Chabad has some. Like, you know, so he's like, no, there's nothing. So the father says to him, listen, do me a favor. Just take one hour. Go on the computer, just do some searches, see if you can find any Jewish spirituality. If you don't, you know, you go to ask. <laughs> he says, okay. So he goes off, goes upstairs, and he Googles Chabad or something. 
<laughs> he said a Rebbe video came up. I'm like, you just watched it, but he didn't really touch him. And then Shari Yechud Vermuna pops up. Wow. He came down like eight hours later. Wow. Yeah, totally like, um, he, he, this is famous. This is someone, I'll tell you who it is. I hope people forgive me. It's Levi Robin, the singer. You ever heard oh, of him? Yeah. 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 He told Mighty me the story. Waters. I think it's. Uh, wow. Yes. Wow. Shariachan makes you, it's the... It's more, I personally, it was, it was not the most transformative book for me. But for some people, I actually, I had a call on my phone a few months ago. And I'm one of those people who don't answer the phone. And it's annoying, but just that's that. how I cope. <laughs> um, for some reason, I don't know what the heck I'll answer it. Let's answer it. And the voice on the phone goes, I'm calling from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory of NASA in Pasadena. I'm like... Okay, how can I help you? <laughs> so he says, well, we have a Tanya class here amongst the rocket scientists, and we can't decide whether to learn the first book of Tanya first or the second book of Tanya first. They're not Jewish. Uh, some of them are probably. I don't know. Okay. I didn't ask. Yeah. These are rocket scientists, you know. <laughs> so we can't decide. So I thought I'd just call you up and ask you. So I was like, why don't you ask the rabbi who's giving the class? He said, there is no rabbi. We're just using your book. So I was like, yeah, scientists, you're probably better off with the second book. <laughs> and the rabbi often recommended that, you know, uh, to kind of use that as the main push forward. I mean, the rabbi lived in a time when emotional work wasn't so popular in the culture. It was more about being intelligent, I'll academic, yeah. I'll triple before, his, I'm saying not before his time, but in a sense, like the time is needed now more than ever before. Indeed. And my last question to you is, I'm asking everyone this question, um, in the times that we are now, post Shemini Atzeres, Tav Shem Dalad, post 7th of October, what is one message you think the entire Jewish world needs to hear right now? It's just keep the achdus. We've had such achdus since that horrible event. We've never seen before that march in Washington, the way the Jews have been, Jews all stripes being united all over the world. Let's, let's keep that. A lot of Jewish blood was spilled to bring that about. And we paid a very high price for it. But let's just remember that we, we, we really are one. I love that. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been so, such a pleasure. I bless you with lots of success. And Amen. we're very lucky to have you in our world. So um, Thank you. no more complexes. <laughs> You're very much appreciated. And thank, thank you. you for everything. And you've really changed people's lives, including myself, including my students, including very good friends of mine who um her life has changed through your tanya so um thank you for everything and a lot of hatzlacha and may it be a really blessed happy year it's the new year i guess for Am Yisrael. oh man thank you that's, thank you that's very humbling yeah. and uh, i wish you hatzlacha in this holy work <laughs> and um your light should shine and, and captivate people and you. Uh, you should feel that what you're doing is a blessing Amazing. Thank you.